0: The Psalm we've just sang, Psalm eighteen, is a, a song that looks forward to the coming of Christ, recognizing that it is in him that God's people have their victory, that it is in him that they stand firm, even in the face of a a world filled with opposition and hatred and strife. And first Peter four, to which we look this morning, has a message that's very similar. We have seen as we've worked our way through 1 Peter that we're called to live a life that is unique. And when we do, people will recognize that we belong to the Lord and many of them will oppose us. But we, we are to stand firm, arming ourselves with the mind of Christ that we might stand firm even in the face of a world filled with opposition. And this morning we're going to see, beginning in in verse 7 and going through verse 11, we're going to see that if we live that kind of life, if we stand firm in Christ before a watching world, we have an opportunity to set the image of Christ before them, to call them to know the Lord. But we can't do it alone. We do it together as the body of Christ. We do it together as the people of the Lord. So again, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 of First Peter 4. I'd like to read with you starting at the beginning of that chapter so we see the context. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Beloved servants of Christ our King, did you know that when you go to a foreign place if you should travel somewhere outside the United States the likelihood is extremely high that folks will quickly recognize you as being American. I'm sure that a couple of our young people who went on a winter trip to Ecuador could probably readily attest to that fact. That they were Rather immediately recognized as foreigners and and probably quickly thereafter recognized as Americans. We experienced it, our family, when when I was in seminary. We spent a summer up in Edmonton. Now, of course, Canada doesn't seem like that foreign of a place and we didn't expect any uh, significant issues with that. We figured we'd blend right in. But folks just knew. By the way, we... We spoke by various mannerisms that we had. Certain things that we just assumed were bizarre to them and, and things that never occurred to us, they took as something that's just granted. For instance, did you know that in Canada, they don't sell American cheese? Shocked us. They're evidently craft singles. And if you ask for American cheese, you get the strangest looks. of course those things work in reverse as well. We can normally tell when somebody's not from us, right? It's just in the pervasive things, our attitudes, the way that we speak, the way that we think. Well, if that's true with regard to our earthly citizenship, that there are attitudes, there are ways of speaking, there are ways of acting that just identify us with the people to whom we belong. If that's true for our earthly citizenship, how much more true with regard to our spiritual citizenship? At the root of our being, at our very core, we can belong to one of two kingdoms. Naturally, we belong to the kingdom of men. The kingdom of this world in its brokenness. That's our default because of our sinful nature. Following the ways of the world, the sins and the rebellions of the flesh, that's what comes natural and that's what identifies us. But by grace, God has delivered his people into his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And if we belong to the kingdom of Christ, then increasingly our attitudes, our behaviors, our way of speaking, our way of thinking, our worldview, our everything, us as no longer belonging to the kingdom of men, but now belonging to the kingdom of God. And it's to help us embrace that kingdom lifestyle that Peter wrote this passage before us today. In fact, it's even bigger than that, because he doesn't want us simply to act as citizens of the kingdom of God, but as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. When citizens travel to places that are not their homes, they They do so for themselves. They represent themselves. Their behavior reflects on them primarily. But as ambassadors, we are called not merely to represent ourselves, but to represent our king and his kingdom. We are called not merely to act as individuals, but as representatives whose very lives reflect the nature of our kingdom. As Christians, we are called to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Every one of us. And that's the theme of the passage that we find before us. God calls his people to act as ambassadors of Christ's ready-to-be-revealed kingdom. And acting as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom means, first of all, that we must cultivate self-control in order to deepen our communion with God. Peter begins by describing the situation God's people face. He says, the end of all things is at hand. question is, what is the end of all things? What does that describe? Some, commenting on this passage, have said, well, that describes the end of the world. But while that would certainly lend a... uh, An urgency to this passage, that's not what the Bible tells us we should be looking forward to. We're not looking for an end of this world, but a transformation of this world through the judgment and then the restoring power of Christ. Some have said that it refers to the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple and its sacrifices. And while that is something that the New Testament often speaks of, including Peter, that's not really what's in view here. Does it refer to the end of life for the individuals to whom Peter is writing? Well, not really. Because Peter's talking about the end of all things, not merely the end of an individual. Look at the context. Look back at, at verses 5 and 6. Peter warned just prior to this text that God will judge everyone who has ever lived. When the day of judgment dawns, it will mark the end of how things now are as Christ separates the sheep from the goats, as he separates those who are his from those who remain in their rebellion, as he renews all things and brings his people into the fullness of the kingdom. That is what Peter is warning us. That the end of the age, the end of all things as we know them, is coming soon. We live in the last times. We don't know when Christ will return. It could be be today. It could be 500 more years from now. This is what we know. We live in the last times. The final era before Jesus returns to judge. He might come back next year, next month, in the next hour. And therefore we must always live in the expectation of the end. It should mold and shape the way that we live. It should color the priorities in our life. It should focus us on what really matters. Do you? Do you live with that expectation of the end of all things? Is that a reality in your life? Do you recognize the urgency of our age? How essential it is that we live in the light of the end. I mean, that's something we need to wrestle with, that at any moment Christ could appear and summon everyone before His throne and call them to give account for everything they've done and everything they've not done, everything they've said and everything they've left unsaid, everything they've desired as well as that which they've acted upon. It could happen any moment, and if it does, are you ready for it? Are you ready to stand before the Lord? Do you believe that you have an answer when He turns His scrutiny upon you? Now this isn't the, the full purpose of this passage, but it's something that, that at this warning we must consider. What will be our answer should that moment dawn right now? Because the Lord is very clear that if you're trusting in yourself to make you right with God, if you're trusting in what you have done or what you have not done, then you are not ready. Because not one of us can even approach being holy enough, righteous enough, good enough to stand before God. It's only if you are in Christ, only if you are joined to Him by faith that you can stand before God confident. Confident. So you need to ask yourself, am I ready? Is my faith in Christ alone? The best way we can prepare for that time and the best way we can equip ourselves to live a life of expectation is by cultivating a life aimed at deepening our communion with the Lord. To that end, Peter gives us a twofold command. First, he says, be serious. The English Standard Version says, be self-controlled. The idea is to cultivate a mind, a way of thinking that is wise and intentional. God doesn't want us pushed and pulled and carried along by the passions of our hearts or by the passions of this world. He wants us to be intentional and self-controlled about what we think and what we don't think, about what we set before ourselves and what we reject. He wants us to be watchful. That word literally indicates a soberness. A refusal to give ourselves over to sin, rebellion, the passions of the flesh. Because the end is near, judgment is is coming as well as restoration. And so we must not allow ourselves to drift into laziness and carelessness and self-absorption. But instead we must intentionally, carefully focus ourselves. That we might prepare for that day of accounting and that we might do in the meantime that which God calls us to do. Because God calls us to cultivate a life of prayer. Prayer, children understand, when we pray, that's not just some words we recite so God will be happy with us. No, that's the way that we cultivate a relationship with God. Think about it. If you have a friend and you want that friendship to become better, You spend time with that person, right? You spend time talking to them, getting to know them, letting them get to know you, right? That's why your parents, when when you get home from school, they want to know, how was your day? What did you do? What did you learn? How are your friends? They ask those questions. They speak to you because they want to deepen their relationship with you. And God wants us to deepen our relationship with Him. But the thing is, we won't enjoy a life of prayer, if we are always allowing our minds to drift off into daydreams, or if we just coast along with the background noise of life, if we simply decline to discipline ourselves, we will never pray. We will never cultivate that relationship. So if we would prepare for the end, and if we would prepare for a life of being ambassadors, then we need to... we need to focus ourselves. We need to position ourselves through self-discipline, through prayer that we might deepen our relationship with the Lord so that's the first thing this this passage really calls you to examine concerning yourself, not only are you ready for the end, but, but are you preparing yourself by a life of intentional prayer are you setting aside time each day Time to learn about God from His Word. Time to consider God's works that surround you. Time to speak with the Lord about what you've learned through intentional prayer. Are you focusing on God? It's good to pray randomly throughout the day. We should do that. As we we recognize what God's been doing, as we see some evidence of His care for us, we should send up those those little moment-by-moment prayers but we also need intentional time throughout our week. Times when we draw away from each other to focus ourselves on the Lord, giving Him thanks, pouring out our heart to Him, asking for His insights, His wisdom, His blessing. We need those times when we turn off the music, the images, the media that bombard us throughout the week so that we can simply focus on the Lord. Are you doing that? Are you making time for that? Are you living a life that encourages communing with God? Because if your every moment is filled with noise, music and media and people and work, if you don't intentionally turn that off and focus on the Lord, then you won't commune with Him. You won't draw closer to Him and you won't be able to serve the way that He calls you to serve. Because if you're living a life that cultivates that kind of relationship with God, folks, His character will increasingly be seen in you. You won't be able to help being an ambassador for the Lord. Because He will be forming and molding and shaping you after His image. And that's the second thing we see in this passage, that we're called to employ spiritual gifts that display the love of God. The first way we employ our spiritual gifts above all else is is by cultivating that love of God. Now, most folks, when they think of love in our world, they think of emotion. They think of that that warm, fuzzy feeling you get. You know, that that first date feeling, that feeling that, oh, this this person is just amazing, right? If you've been married for a lot of years, you know that love is more than that. Because that warm, fuzzy feeling, it comes and goes. But real love is that commitment that I'm going to put this person first. No one is going to come before this person. Nothing else is going to intrude on this relationship. It is that intentional commitment to put me last and that person first. True love is selfless. Selfless seeking the good of another, even if it brings me hurt. It's, it's patient, it's kind, seeking to bless even someone who's not seeking to bless me back. True love is Christ, dying on the cross under the wrath of God that He alone did not deserve for us who scorned Him, for us who hated Him, for us who wanted nothing to do with Him. That's love. And that's what we're called to have for one another, for our fellow Christians. We're called to love all men, but especially those to whom we've been joined by Christ. Those who are part of the body of Christ with us. We are called to love one another with a love that is fervent. Not half-hearted. Not loving when it's convenient. Not loving when we're loved in return. Love that is intentional even toward those, perhaps especially toward those who offend us, those who hurt us, those who who don't love us back. That's the love that is to arise in the hearts of those who have experienced the love of God. We love because He first loved us. We love because He poured out His Spirit upon us that we might reflect His love to the world. And when we do, says Peter, when we love in that way, love will cover a multitude of sins. That is essential if we as a church are to be ambassadors for Christ. Because people look at us. People want to know, what are these people like? What is it that draws them together in the church? What is the character of that church? Well, you know what? naturally we're sinful naturally we'll hurt each other we'll say stupid things that cause offense that bring one another low and our natural response to those natural sins is to to hold grudges and to get revenge and to separate and to divide It's what we see out there. That's what we see in our community. That's what we see in our world. Think about all the office politics, especially you who, who work in some of our bigger employers among town or in town. You know the drama that happens at work, and why does that drama happen? It's because somebody sins and somebody else responds in a sinful way. There's all this selfishness, there's all this self love. And Peter's saying that the church ought to be different. In fact, it should be diametrically opposed to that. And the way we do that is with love, intentional love, selfless, fervent love that covers over the sins of those around us. Nothing will destroy a church more quickly than selfish grudges when folks dwell upon the offenses they've experienced, when they nurture that bitterness in their hearts. That kind of offense is sure to come because we're all wrestling with sin. We all come into the church with mounds of baggage. But what should define the church, what should set it apart is the way we deal with those sins. Not with bitterness, not with grudges, not with separation, but rather with love. Love that covers over those minor offenses. Love that assumes the best about what other people say. Love that comes to the one who has sinned against us painfully and shows them their sin lovingly, gently, and urges them to reject that sin. Love that restores and rebuilds and reunifies that which sin has torn apart. That's what needs to to define us. And if that defines us, the world will look on us and say, what is up with them? How do they do that? Do you have no pride that you let someone speak to you like that and then you love them anyway? Do you have no self-respect? And we answer, no, we have Christ-respect. We love because he first loved us. And not only do we forgive one another, but we show hospitality to one another. The word translated hospitality, by the way, is fascinating. It's a compound word. It's formed of two Greek words. Philos, which means love. And xenos, which means stranger or other. So it's literally love for others or stranger love. It refers to a practice that in the ancient Near East was absolutely it was considered to be absolutely essential. When someone knocked at your door, it was just expected that you would open up to them. If, if they were hungry, you fed them. If they were, were cold and, and their clothes were in tatters, you, you clothed them. And if it was evening, you put them up for the night and then sent them away with breakfast in the morning. Hospitality is love opening the door and saying, come in and take what you need. Well, we are to be hospitable, again, to one another. Now, there are many places in the Bible where it calls us to be hospitable to the stranger. Here, it emphasizes to one another. We're to love one another, our fellow members in Christ, without grumbling. It's easy to grumble when we're being hospitable. There's nothing in it for us. We're giving, we're not receiving. But we'll not grumble if we recognize that this opportunity for hospitality is an opportunity that God has given us. An opportunity to show His love to one another. An opportunity to build up the body of Christ. Because that's what hospitality does among brothers and sisters in the Lord. By our hospitality, we draw folks in and show them that they're truly part of the church. We show them, you are one of us and you are welcome." We cause them to invest because in pouring out our love on them, we cause them to desire to love us back. Hospitality is how we create disciples. What better way can you come up with to show someone what it means to live as a Christian than by living a Christian life before them? When, when you're a young couple, we had this happen in our, our first church home when we were married. We would be invited into the, the homes of these folks that had been married for more years who, who had children in their teens and their, their upper childhood. And they would invite us into their home and we would see what a Christian family looked like, how they did devotions, how they disciplined, how they spoke to one another. Hospitality allows you to disciple one another and to build true community. Without hospitality, without spending time together, learning to love one another, without that, we're just a loosely knit social group. But when we practice hospitality, when we spend time in one another's homes, God teaches us to love one another. He teaches us to think and act with their best interests in mind. He molds us into the reality of the body of Christ. So the question here is, are you doing that Are you opening your home to your fellow saints? Are you finding excuses to fill your house with the people of God? A game night so you can learn some new games together. A a birthday or anniversary so you can celebrate together. A a hymn sing aimed perhaps at at our single members or some of our older members. Are you finding an excuse to invite folks into your home? And I'm not talking the people that you've, you've... gone to grade school with, the people that you've known all your life, the people you're related to. I'm talking the members of the church that you don't really know other than to see. The ones that you struggle to remember their name when you see them in the grocery store. Those are the ones you need to invite into your home so that you can get to know them. Because you know, in, in bringing them into your home, you get to know them. You learn to care about them. You learn from them, and they learn from you. The Lord calls us. It's not just just a nice option. He calls us. He commands us to show hospitality to one another. And meanwhile, to learn to minister to one another with the gifts God has given. Minister to one another. That word rendered minister is diakoneo. It's the word that we get the word deacon from. It means to serve. Selflessly to serve. The way a... A person serving you your food serves, doing a lowly task so that you can be blessed. You see, we all have been given gifts. Some of them are noticeable. public, the, the gift of teaching, the gift of uh, leading the congregation in singing, by playing music. Those are public gifts that we all recognize, we all see. But many of our gifts are very subtle: the gift of child care. The gift of, of gentle encouragement. The gift of helping people to learn how to use their technology. It can be fairly commonplace, perhaps in your eyes. But some of those subtle gifts are, are among the most essential. Because they're the gifts that knit us together. The gifts that show, that show us that we're needed, that, that, that we're cared for, that we're loved. All of us have been given gifts and all of us are called to use those gifts to minister, to serve one another selflessly. It doesn't mean that it's illegitimate to use our gifts to make a living but it does mean that we should use our gifts free of charge to those who are really in need especially among the people of God and recognize recognize that we often discover our gifts in serving. Don't see all these opportunities around you to serve and say, well, I'm not gifted for that, I'm not gifted for that. No. If a need is presented before you, pray. Ask the Lord, am I meant to meet this need? Ask Him to equip you and then take up that need. You see your, your neighbor has some broken down parts of her house and she's unable to, to meet those needs she's unable to fix those parts of her house but, but you don't really consider yourself all that terribly handy well maybe find somebody in the church that you know is handy and ask if, if the two of you could go and fix that house together fix those problems together you might find out that you have a natural knack for it and that you can use that gift to help someone else and someone else and someone else again you might not think that you're, you're very gifted in teaching but they really, really need someone to teach those kindergartners, those first graders. So you step out in faith. You know what you might find? That you have a natural knack given by God to explain those hard truths in a way that first graders can understand. Recognize that all that, that Peter is commending in verses 8 and 10, all of these are essential gifts, acts of ministry. We're all called to minister. Sometimes we're tempted to think that, that it's, it's the preachers, it's the elders, they're the ones that are called to minister. But, but Ephesians 4 tells us they're the ones given to equip you to minister. All of us are called to minister, to serve in the name of Christ. How we minister is widely varied. Some preach, some offer biblical counseling, but others serve and minister by fixing things or by listening or by providing childcare to someone who's in need, or, or simply by the infectious joy that they spread throughout the church. But all of you have been given gifts, and all of you are called to minister. And when you do, you will reveal Christ, both to His people, and to the world that is watching from outside. Now there's a temptation to think, that that's a bit of a burden. Having to serve others, having to use your gifts in those ways. But it's not a burden. It's a privilege. The same is true for a person who is named an ambassador for his country. It's it's a lot of work to serve as an ambassador. It's a lot of responsibility. But generally speaking, they take up that calling with eagerness and with joy, recognizing what a privilege they've been given. Well, so too must we. And so our final point is that we cherish stewardship opportunities to devote glory to God. It's important that we remember that we are stewards. Kids, do you know what that means? A steward? A steward is someone who's been called to serve on behalf of someone else for the sake of someone else with the possessions of that other person. And that's us. God is the one who calls us to serve. God is the one who gives us the things that we need to serve. In fact, everything you have, everything you have belongs to Him. And all of it has been given to you in order to serve. That's something we must always remember, that everything we possess belongs to God. He gave it to us that we might serve Him and that we might serve others in His name. So if we refuse to use some of our gifts, or if we, re- we, we insist on using those gifts selfishly, if we take pride in our gifts as though we were the source of them, if we do these things, we misuse what God has entrusted to us. And so we must strive then, prayerfully, we must strive to use what He's given to us in a way that honors Him. And we should do it gratefully. I mean, you were made, you were made for this purpose, that you might serve God in a way that honors Him. In your sin, you ruined yourself for that purpose. You weren't able to do it. Because in your sin, you would do everything selfishly. You would do everything for yourself. You would always strive to glorify me. But Christ came to redeem us from that. He came to restore us to God. He came to renew that relationship. Not only so that we could get to heaven. Not only so that we could avoid hell. But so that we could have that relationship with God that would allow us to honor Him, to glorify Him, to do what we were made to do. So in gratitude for His restoration... Let us devote ourselves to ministering intentionally as His stewards, as His ambassadors. That means that when you speak, you speak for God. It doesn't mean that everything you say, you know, you, you have to speak formally as though you're in the pulpit. No. What it means is that you try to speak in a way that will point people to God. That before you speak, you test the words that you're about to say against what God has said, so that you don't say anything that's false, anything that's wrong, anything that's a lie. That when you're about to say something to someone, you use the the principles that God's Word teaches you about selflessness and love to ensure that you're speaking in a way that builds up rather than tearing down. When you speak, you speak for God. When you minister, you minister as God's servants. Recognizing that he's the one who gave you the opportunity to serve. He's the one who has strengthened and equipped you to serve. And therefore you you give all the glory to him. You give all the credit to him. When someone says thanks, you say, you know what? God has given me this opportunity. Give him thanks. Because when we do that, when we speak on behalf of God, when we uh, serve looking to him, He's the one who gets the credit. He's the one who gets the glory. And we get to fulfill our purpose. That's why Jesus came. That's why we exist. That's the the apex, the highest point of our being. If we can point others to Him. That's what ambassadors do, right? There's some trouble in the country in, in which they're serving. And someone comes to them for help. And so they they use the resources that are at their disposal. Perhaps they use the armed forces to quell a uh, disturbance. Or they use some of the aid money that has been set apart by Congress in order to assist this country where they're serving. And when the leaders of that country come to them grateful. They don't point to themselves, they don't bask in their own glory. No, they point back to the country they represent and they say, give them thanks. They're the ones who've helped, they're the ones who have served. Well, so must we do as ambassadors. When they look to us, when they say thank you for serving, when they say I want, I want the character I've seen in you, we don't point to ourselves, we don't bask in that. No. We point them to Christ. We point them to our Heavenly Father. We say that is the origin. That is the source. And He is the one who can give you all that you need. We are ambassadors for our faithful, gracious God. So let us live as ambassadors. That means cultivating a life through self-control that deepens our communion with Him. It means employing the gifts that He's given to us in order to show His love to those around us. And above all, it, it, means, it means cherishing those opportunities He's given to us that we might glorify Him. May God enable us to do this. And may He make it our greatest joy to serve and to honor Him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, You are so good to us and so gracious. We pray that You would indeed make it our joy to serve You, to honor You, to to make others know You. Lord, we know that we can't do it on our own. We're too weak. We're powerless. But we also know that You delight to work in Your people and to use them to bring glory to Yourself. And so we pray that You would use us not only as individuals, but as a congregation, to reveal Your glory to the world, to reveal Your love to those in need, and to reveal the reality of that communion to which You have called us in Christ. In His name we pray it. Amen.